Welcome to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're talking about the Edgar Allan Poe classic, The Murders in the Rue Morgue, originally published in Graham's Magazine in 1841. The Murders in the Rue Morgue is well known as the first detective story, the first mystery story. And so, Brandon, I think one may well ask why we aren't covering this on a detective fiction podcast rather than a weird fiction podcast. But I'm going to argue, and I think as as you and I will work together to demonstrate throughout our episode, this story is as much a weird fiction story as it is a detective story. And while we would certainly have all sorts of weird fiction without this story, we would not have the Lovecraftian brand of weird fiction without the murders in the room morgue. Yeah, that's true. It really struck me as I was reading this story how deep the roots of weird fiction really are in this. This is, I mean, still part of the gothic movement in, in American fiction, and it's genuinely unsettling at times. I, I actually got scared reading this story. <laughs> I was telling my nephews about it because they love scary stories, and I think I really scared one of them. So. <laughs> well, this is a uh, a monster of a story, a beast of a story, perhaps, Brandon. Uh, so why don't you take us through the plot of The Murders in the Rue Morgue? Gladly. The Murders in the Rue Morgue opens with this epigraph by Sir Thomas Brown. What song the sirens sang, or what name Achilles assumed when he hid himself among women, although puzzling questions, are not beyond all conjecture. Yeah, this is a fun epigraph, Brandon. So Thomas Brown is a, or was, I suppose we should say, a 17th century physician who was fairly important in the intellectual culture of England of his day. And I think, though, what matters most here is the epistemological gauntlet that Thomas Brown, and by extension, Edgar Allan Poe, is throwing down here, suggesting that even if we can't find evidence of a thing, that does not mean we can't know or understand a thing. And this, more or less, as an epigraph is supposed to do, tells us what the story will be about as we follow our detective through his logical exercises. But I want to also point out here, Brandon, that this quotation, this line comes specifically from a book of his called Hydriotophia, which is ancient Greek for something like the burial of a water jug, or really probably more correctly to say something like the gravestone of a water jug. And in this work, Brown catalogs and discusses all the burial customs known to him, and he ponders why humans are so obsessed with the corpses of the deceased rather than the deeds of the deceased. And so this plays right into the title, The Rue Morgue. Yeah, thanks for that, Glenn. That's really, really interesting stuff. I didn't have time to really look into Sir Thomas Brown, so I'm glad you came prepared with that. The story begins in earnest with our unnamed narrator pontificating about the nature of the person who is an analyst. In the same way that a strong man exults in his physical ability, so glories the analyst in that moral activity which disentangles. The analyst is further characterized, according to the narrator, by their fondness of enigmas, conundrums, hieroglyphics, and any difficult puzzle where they can put their skills on display. They also appear to have a highly developed sense of intuition. The skills of the analyst are not as readily uncovered or displayed in the game of chess as you might imagine, as they are in the games of drafts and whist. 
which is Checkers and Bridge. And this is because in both of those games, uh, Drafts and Whist, the best players are analysts, and they're able to read the other players more than just the game itself. They're able to put themselves in the mind of their opponents in order to seduce them to error or hurry them to miscalculation. Furthermore, they're able to keep track of the many disparate pieces of information in order to make the best types of decisions once the playing field is established. Chess, on the other hand, is limited in its possibilities, and the players of chess, which are the non-analytic person in this narrator's mind, are likely to confuse this complexity of possibilities with profundity. Brandon, I am not sure I buy this argument one bit. Uh, and I will I'll just point out one thing here that I think really bothers me about Poe's classifications here of intuition and analysis. And one of the things that he really harps on here at the beginning is that an analytical mind works from a method. And then he goes on to tell us that someone who is good at playing bridge or poker is a really analytical person because he or she can read other people's facial expressions and get in the mind of the other players. That is not analysis. That is intuition. You can only do that if you are playing bridge or other card games with someone who is a part of your culture and who makes similar facial expressions. If we put Edgar Allan Poe or his hero detective in this story to play a game of, of bridge against a Martian, C. Auguste Dupin would not fare very well, at least not based on this reasoning. That's true. There's some odd technical language being used here, I think, in this introduction before the narrative really kicks off that uh, calls back to Kant's critique of pure reason, that Edgar Allan Poe, it feels like he just read it and then invented a detective. I think that's why Poe goes into such great length to talk about these games here, because it's not just the rules of the game, like in Checkers, um, that method can be applied. That's only to the game itself. But these other games that Poe is talking about take into account the whole of the human experience, given certain limitations, many of which you brought up. The sense you get is in reading Kant after you've read 150 detective stories, <laughs> um, like I did, is that, well, the solution is only available to the person with a certain type of unlimited knowledge. And I think that's where Arthur Conan Doyle took this character and basically turned him into like a superhuman mind so that all knowledge is available to him. Well, should we meet Poe's detective now? Oh, yes, we should. Uh, so in the spirit of this commentary, and readers, if you've not read this story, you're going to get that those three pages are, are challenging. They're genuinely challenging prose and, and full of ideas. So uh, it's in the spirit of that commentary that the narrator invites us into a tale in which the work of the analyst is on full display. The narrator tells us he had moved to Paris during the spring and part of the summer, somewhere in the middle of the 19th century. He became acquainted with a fallen aristocrat by the name of C. Auguste Dupin. Dupin and the narrator meet while searching for the same very rare, very remarkable book. And Glenn, as you brought up weird fiction, this is 
super weird fiction. This is like what weird fiction is about. They're both on the hunt for this unknown, very rare book that has some kind of knowledge that they both need. Yeah. And and we're about to learn how they're going to move into each other and share a bookish life, which is one of the most Lovecraftian things ever. There are a couple other things I want to point out about Dupin before we get going. You mentioned, Brandon, your your summary describes Dupin as a fallen aristocrat. Those are not the words that Poe uses. Poe says that he's from an illustrious family that has been reduced to poverty by a variety of untoward events. Now, I agree with you. I think he is talking about an aristocrat here whose family has been felled by the French Revolution that is a generation or perhaps two generations old, depending on when in the 19th century we think this uh, story takes place. This in itself already is wildly fantastical because none of the aristocrats should be alive or have retained any of their property such that they would be able to have a small allowance, as we are told C. Auguste Dupin does. And you've already brought up, Brandon, the the link that this idea has with many of Lovecraft's characters, but I would actually argue that it goes further than that. This is how Lovecraft thinks of himself. Lovecraft is from fallen New England aristocracy, mercantile aristocracy, not landed aristocracy, who tries to scrape by on just enough money to have an unheated one-room apartment, live off of can of beans, and live a life of the mind. So I would submit that this is not only the archetype of the Lovecraftian hero, this is the archetype of Lovecraft himself. That's a really interesting comment. I could not agree more. Young Lovecraft is reading this and sees uh, Dupin as a hero, that he ought to imitate in his own in his own life. Yeah, I think one of the ways that we can see that happening here with Dupin is that despite having a, to live a meager existence, this bookstore that he and our unnamed narrator are shopping at is on the, the Rue Montmartre, which is an avenue that runs in the first and second arrondissements in, in Paris, very close to the river and in a very posh, very touristy part of town. So this is not an inexpensive bookstore. And the cafe that's across the street that maybe he's going to have breakfast at is also an expensive, is going to be an expensive cafe. And so this is a person who on the inside or in private has to leave a sh- lead a shabby life, but, but on the outside wants to continue to have sort of the trappings of, of his birthright, which again is, I think, points to Lovecraft. Yeah, great point. I think we're told that Dupin only allows himself books as kind of his sole luxury in life, but it's probably books and breakfast because they, they go too well together. <laughs> <laughs> so the narrator and Dupin continue to run into each other, kind of looking for books or about town, and they get to know each other. And as you mentioned, Glenn, the narrator offers Dupin a place to stay in a, quote, time-eaten and grotesque mansion that the narrator is renting. And it suits them both. And the isolation of the mansion allows them to keep these strange hours where they sleep or read during the day and they walk the city by night. Yeah, the mood and the description in that passage about the house, Brandon, is fantastic. I actually want to read the rest of that line because there's, I think there's even more to it. As you say, Brandon, it is a a time-eaten and grotesque mansion, long deserted through superstitions into which we did not inquire tottering to its fall in a retired and desolate portion of the Faubourg Saint-Germain. And what I think is really great about this is that right here, right from the start, not only are we getting mood and this really beautiful prose, but we're being taunted here, despite our opening about reason and, and analysis, we're being taunted here by Poe with 
superstitions. This is a haunted house. That's why no one will live in it, and they can rent it very cheaply. It's fantastic. I wish this story would have been about these guys finding desiccated corpse in the house, and then it led to some redemptive treasure to bring Dupin back to glory or in some in some way you get the sense I mean this is a real Scooby-Doo house that these guys have moved into <laughs> absolutely yeah I want to point out one more thing about the house before we move on Brandon uh, it's just which is just to say that the the Faubourg is in the the seventh arrondissement and since the 18th century since even before the French Revolution this has been the poshest of posh places in Paris it's got the largest mansions uh, it's where the aristocrats would live and even after the revolution this became the posh neighborhood of the new commercial and industrial elite who replaced the old regime. So they've rented a dilapidated house in the best part of Paris, which is essentially also a metaphor for Dupin's family history. Well, there's one more thing I want to say about the house before we get into the real heart of the story, which is not going to happen till I till I allow our narrator <laughs> and Dupin to go on their evening stroll. But they're are two lines in this stage setting bit here that I think are really interesting. The narrator says that he carefully kept the location of this house a secret from his own former associates. And he also says that his business was seeking in Paris the objects I then sought. And I wonder, what are these? What is he in Paris looking for? And we never find out these two lines to me seem like he's in Paris on some sort of secret mission or something. And I want to know what is his backstory and someone has probably already done it, but this to me seems like a great opportunity for some fan fiction. And I would love for listeners to take us up on that invitation and to send us some stories. Yeah. Who is our narrator? Is he an American spy uh, in Paris? Perhaps why is he hiding from his associates? Just a lot of questions brought up in these first now two pages of the real narrative of this, <laughs> of this story, or at least the titular narrative. Yeah, I suspect the title he prefers is Expert Treasure Hunter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the title I think we all wish we could have. <laughs> so one night, uh, while Dupin and, and the narrator are on their evening walk, after about 15 minutes or so of walking in silence... Dupin comments upon the unspoken thoughts of the narrator. And the narrator is astonished by Dupin's ability to know precisely what the narrator was thinking about. And as it happens, the narrator was thinking about a midget former cobbler who had become an actor and was not suited for tragic theater. Dupin walks the narrator through his thought process, and this is something that Poe elsewhere calls ratiocination. Not in this story, though. It's not mentioned in this story. Through some close observation of the narrator's body language and an understanding of how the narrator thinks based on their endless conversing and conversations, Dupin is able to clearly explain how he arrived at his comment about the ex-cobbler turned actor, and it's a pretty pretty lengthy explanation. It involves Orion, a fruiterer, uh, cobblestones, paving stones, and uh, one or two other things. And it's a little ridiculous. Right. I think ridiculous is definitely the right way to characterize this. Brandon Dupin's analysis of the narrator's train of thought is insane. It is definitely ridiculous. Frankly, I think it's rather silly. 
but it has at least one reference that is significant for one of the themes of the story, and especially the theme that is at the heart of the cosmic horror brand of weird fiction. So we're going to come back to that in the discussion. So I want to draw just a little bit of attention to it here. And that is that Dupin mentions the atomist theories of the Greek philosopher Epicurus, and we will talk about those in the discussion. There's one more thing that I want to point out here about Dupin while they are out taking their walks. At this section, the narrator describes Dupin as having a bipart soul, and he imagines these parts as the creative is the one part, and the resolvent is the second part. And resolvent here meaning not merely you know to solve, but to, to break into parts, to break down actually into its original parts is really what the meaning of that would be. Uh, but it is a destructive impulse rather than a creative impulse. So there's a, a creative and a destructive impulse here. And the narrator ascribes this to what he describes as an excited or perhaps a diseased intelligence. And this is the blueprint of the detective from here on out, someone who is too intelligent to be well-adjusted to society. It is all right here in this one paragraph. Yeah, it's wonderful. The opening of this story is a blueprint for the great detectives that come after the Dupin. And then this, it just really tightens the screws about the archetype of this character. Well, the two men continue their routine. And a few nights after the night where Dupin's analytic skill is on display, though I'm assuming it's a few nights after, the text just says not long after, the two men read about extraordinary murders in the evening edition of their newspaper. The murders have taken place on the fourth story of a house in the Rue Morgue. Only two women, a mother and a daughter, lived in the house. After hearing some screaming from the home, Several neighbors and two gendarmes break down the door of their room, only to find the apartment in disorder. There's a blood-smeared razor, thick tresses of gray human hair, and 4,000 francs of gold lying on the floor. So the murder is pretty shocking. All right, I'll, I'll give the story that. But Brandon, to me, what I think is the most shocking thing that happens here is that Postop's telling his story to just reprint a newspaper article for like 10 pages. Call it pastiche. He was way ahead of his time. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it uh, it's really it's really jarring. I think to a modern a modern reader, I don't dislike it. This is one of my favorite stories of all time. But you couldn't publish that story today if that's what you decided to do. So it's a really strange and really interesting narrative technique. He gets points for being first. I think. Yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> so, so more information is revealed in this in this section of the story where they're just reading the newspaper for a couple days. Um, they discover the daughter was stuffed up a small chimney chute, which we later discover was not big enough for even a large cat. And she was stuffed up there feet first. To me, this is the image that haunted me the most in this story. Genuinely chilling writing and imagery around the daughter being found in the chimney. And she, she's an adult woman, I should say as well. Yeah, this this breaks the rules. It breaks, maybe not the laws, but it certainly breaks our expectations of physics. It tells us that the world is not as it seems. It's not operating as it should be. And it is grotesque and horrifying. Right. And even worse, the mother was discovered on a small paved yard outside of their rooms. And Poe describes her as being fearfully mutilated. And when they try to move her, her head just comes off the body. 
The next day, the newspapers include the deposition from the witnesses. Many people discussed their relationship with the two women. They were decent people and they kept to themselves. The mother, Madame Lespinier, had only taken the 4,000 francs out of uh, the bank, I suppose, a few days before. And she was assisted by an acquaintance of Dupin, Adolphe Laban. And that's an awful lot of money. 4,000 francs in, you know, more or less 18, 1840, when the story is written, would be today about $50,000. So there is a question right away of what Madame Lespinier needs with all of this money? Why does she need $50,000 in cash in her house right now? Right, especially because she owns this home and they don't even need lodgers. Uh, It's just two women living alone. And the really only information we get about her occupation is that she reads fortunes occasionally. She might read fortunes occasionally. There's some, this is in in dispute as the witnesses reported in the uh, newspaper article tell us. That's right. And and, and all of the people also know that they heard two male voices. Uh, One was clearly a Frenchman. They heard him shout, Sacre and Mandu. And the other voice, though, was shrill. Though many of those deposed were not natively French. One is Russian, one is Italian, one is Spanish. And none of them can place the language or the words spoken by the second person in the room. We further learn that Madame Lespinier's throat was cut with a razor, the razor that was in the room. And it was cut with such force that it separated the body from the head. And we also learned that her daughter was strangled before being stuffed into the chimney. So there's some real gothic elements in this description, Brandon. I think we've already pointed to the question of whether or not Madame Lespanier is a fortune teller, and she seems to have hidden money. She's got this $50,000, this 4,000 francs in cash and gold in the house. All of this is very gothic, you know, family mystery. Where does the money come from? Are they doing, are they up to supernatural things in the house? Why is this adult woman unmarried? These are all tropes of gothic horror. These are, we could find these things in a novel by any one of the innumerable Bronte sisters. There is also these words that everyone overhears that you pointed out, Brandon. We hear sacre, we hear mon dieu, and we hear Diablo. These are holy, devil, God. These words as well emphasize something gothic, and they may even suggest something supernatural here. That's what, you know, the words devil and holy evoke these images for us. And this is calling back now to the supernaturalness of the house that our narrator and Japan are living in. So even still at this point, Poe is taking us through the steps here of building a supernatural gothic mystery here. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to read once you really get into the narrative. Yeah, I mean, it's masterfully done. Oh, man, it's real good. So Dupin and the narrator follow the developments of this case with interest, as all of Paris does. But it's not until Dupin learns that Adolphe Laban, his acquaintance, is arrested that he decides to actually put his talents to use. Dupin explains to the narrator that the Parisian police are not up to the task because their methods are ultimately ill-adapted to certain types of crime. They can't see clearly, and they suffer the same mistake that our narrator brought up in the beginning of calling profound what is merely complex. And this 
profundity seems to excuse them from further investigation. In this section, Dupin also brings up his clear real-life predecessor, Vidoc, who was this great kind of French detective, kind of a real figure in, in, in French life in the 19th century. Yeah, I think Dupin is really actually even says that they don't have any method at all and that the successes they do have are the result of guesswork and intuition and, and not the result of this analytical method that he talks about at the beginning of the story. And there's one thing here I want to point out as well, and this is just me speaking as a historian. It's easy for us to read this story and think, yeah, of course, the police are incompetent because this is a it's a detective story. The police have to be incompetent. But the point that Poe is writing this story, police forces are a new thing. Most cities on the planet don't have police forces when Poe is writing this story. The Parisian police force is founded only in 1800 under Napoleon, so 40 years prior to the writing of this story. And we don't actually know when this story takes place other than that it's sometime between 1800 and 1840. And so it's quite possible that these police that Dupin is being so critical of, of course, they have no method because that science hasn't been invented yet. But I think that what's interesting here to me as a historian is that what we're getting here is not just Poe needing a foil for his detective. Poe is calling into question the legitimacy of policing. The police can do nothing to stop these kinds of brutal events from happening, which I think is at least part of the criticism of this story, is what value is the police if they can't stop crime and if they can't solve crime? Like, what is the real need for them, especially if they're not looking for the best people for the job? This trope exists today in full force. I'm uh, currently rewatching The Wire, and this is a big theme of The Wire as well, is who are the police and what are they, what are they doing? Um, <laughs> Sherlock Holmes, this is definitely a big trope of the reboot of Sherlock Holmes. This is still a part of both the CBS version and the BBC one involve kind of the incompetent constable or police detective who needs to rely on the outsider because they can't, they don't have the resources they need to get the job done. Poe just invents this out of whole cloth in this story. Yeah, he does. And it's ingenious. But I think the thing that I'm really pointing to is this is a historical moment where we watch these shows, we read these books, we maybe even think the police aren't often all that good at what they do, because if you're really smart, you can get a job that pays better or something like that. But we aren't going to read about a botched murder investigation in the newspaper. We aren't going to watch The Wire and think, you know what, maybe we just shouldn't have police anymore. But Poe's audience would think that. That is what, like, the, the police having a police force is not a given in this, at this point in time. It's an experiment that maybe we could do without. And so I think here Poe is actually weighing in on that, on that issue. I think he's actually being critical of the existence of police, which, you know, if I can be, if be allowed to indulge myself in a little bit of crit fic is perhaps because he spent a lot of time in the drunk tank in Baltimore. <laughs> right. Well, I think that's even further demonstrated by the fact that Dupin can just get permission from the prefect of police to go and investigate the crime scene <laughs> here, which he does. So he and the narrator go, they get this permission, and they go and look at the crime scene. And I think um, while Poe doesn't explicitly narrate this, Dupin also is able to see the dead bodies, which is just, just astounding. Though his motivation is a little unclear, um, it's clear that Dupin really does want to try to free Laban from suspicion. Dupin himself has money troubles, and we get the sense that Laban is a good guy and has helped him out in the past. So the men investigate this fourth floor of the Rue Morgue and the surrounding area. 
And the narrator tells us that he doesn't really see anything that wasn't already described in the newspaper. But Dupin, he says, scrutinizes everything. And the narrator says that he's just learned to put up with these eccentricities and foibles of his friend Dupin. Dupin asks the narrator if he had seen anything peculiar at the scene of the atrocity, as he describes it. The narrator confesses that he has not. And in response, Dupin explains that he has reached some conclusions about the case. We also learn that they're now at home. They've left the crime scene. They're waiting back at home. And Dupin goes on to explain, as they're waiting at home, that there is a person that is responsible for the crimes that is not the perpetrator. And he hands the narrator a pistol and tells him he may need to use it if the occasion demands. And they're waiting for that guy to show up at their mansion. This is really nuts. Dupin solves the mis he's already solved the mystery he solves the mystery at about the halfway point of the story and as you're about to recap for us brandon he spends then several pages explaining his analysis so the the climax of this story is not figuring it out this has already happened so the climax of the story the third act is going to be who knows what at this point and poe relies here on this technique of kind of putting a clock on this exposition in order to keep the narrative itself flowing. Because if Dupin had not said, we're just, I, we're now waiting for this person to show up, here's a pistol, and then goes on to these 12 or so pages of exposition, I don't know if I would have been able to hang in there. Yeah, right. We're, we're waiting to see the pistols used. Right. We, we, we expect that they're going to be used. We're going to have a, a very long speech of Dupin's explaining how he knows what has happened, even though the narrator can't make any sense of it. But at the end of that, the promise is, as you say, Brandon, the promise is those guns are going to go off. That's that's the deal. <laughs> so Dupin then begins to unravel. He disentangles this puzzle of the murders in the Rue Morgue. There are a few problems that have stopped the police from being able to solve the crime for all their police work is worth. The first is the problem of the second voice. It is peculiar that all of the people deposed, though they all agree that it was not a Frenchman speaking, could not place the native origin and language of the speaker. Each spoke of the second voice as a foreigner. This is a clue for Dupin. The next problem is that of the locked doors and windows. How did the murderer gain ingress and egress from the fourth-story chambers? Dupin confirms that the chimney was too small and that they did not come and go via the door. This is what the neighbors all attested to. That left only one possibility, the window. At first, Dupin struggled to open the windows in the room. They appeared to be, as the police discovered, nailed shut. But because the only possibility for escape was through the windows, there must have been a way to open them. Indeed, Dupin discovers that the windows are opened by a concealed spring and that the nails are just for show. Though for it to appear that the nails in the window were not displaced, there must be something else going on as well. And what Dupin discovers is that the window by the bed features a nail that is broken, even though it appears to be whole, and that a person exiting that window could have closed it behind them, leaving none the wiser. But how did they get down from the fourth story? Well, 
Dupin tells the narrator that there are special shutters that are latticed and could easily provide a grip for one ascending or descending. Yes, these shutters are far apart, and they would require an unusual amount of of activity to perform that feat of climbing up and down and jumping across them. But that must have been what has happened. Also, there's a lightning rod, which could be climbed. This is all uh, pretty absurd here, Brandon. But I want to point out that I want to submit to you that this also is one of the most Lovecraftian things in this story. Poe goes on here for quite a long time about these peculiar kinds of shutters that are rarely found in Paris of the modern day but are frequently seen upon very old mansions at Lyon and Bordeaux. And an obsession with and an intense knowledge of the most bizarre of architectural features is a hallmark of H.P. Lovecraft. And here it is in Poe as well. Yes, and it's also a hallmark of future detectives. I mean, Sherlock Holmes, I don't know how many times it's brought up that he just like smells perfume on his off time so he can be aware of all the scents. What you see in Sherlock Holmes is the preparation that goes into the mind of the great detective. And here in Poe, we just have Dupin's knowledge of the decrepit history of Paris and France, and it's wonderful. But there is a further problem, and that is with the motive of the crime. Why was it committed? The room was in shambles, we know, when the witnesses arrived, and there was nothing taken, including these 4,000 francs. Also, what kind of motive could explain the excessive outre nature of the murders? The beheading with a razor and a strangulation, lots of hair being pulled out by roots to the point of bits of congealed flesh that were left hanging at the base of the hair. All of these problems leave Dupin to believe that the perpetrator of these murders must have astounding agility and superhuman strength. They must be void of humanity, and they must not speak in a tone recognizable by other men. Glenn, I think you were just about to sing the Twilight Zone theme song. (laughs) (laughs) The Dupin here says something that is really wonderful. He says, brought to this conclusion in so unequivocal a manner as we are, it is not our part as reasoners, to reject it on account of apparent impossibilities. It is only left for us to prove that these apparent impossibilities are, in reality, not such. And we can compare this to the much more famous and perhaps more eloquent saying of Holmes that when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And we are just about to get Dupin unleashing on us the most absurd solution to this mystery. (laughs) Yes, we are. Dupin has also found a clump of hair within the rigidly clutched fingers of Madame Lespinier. The hair, the narrator is horrified to discover, is not human hair. Additionally, we learn that the finger marks left behind on the neck of the daughter are too large to be the work of any human hand. Dupin reveals the truth to us, that the hand mark, in fact, belongs to an orangutan. And (laughs) the translation of, this is just a fun fact about this word, the, the, the earliest translation of this word means just jungle man. It's, it's kind of incredible. I, I love the word orangutan. 
Yeah, I want to zoom in on the moment here when Dupin really reveals to the narrator that an orangutan has committed these murders. And in fact, really even characterizing it that way is not quite right. Dupin does not reveal it. He allows the narrator to discover it for himself. Dupin hands to our narrator a book that has a description of an orangutan in it, and he asks the narrator to read it. And it's after he's read the passage, the narrator writes, I understood the full horrors of the murder at once. And that line is going to be important in our discussion. So I wanted to zoom in on that. I also want to talk about the book that Poe has Dupin give to the narrator. Uh, This is a book by uh, Georges Cuvier, who's a a French zoologist who worked at the beginning of the 19th century. The work invoked by Poe here is his 1817, The Animal Kingdom. And the narrator here in our story, Brandon, summarizes the entry on the orangutan. But what Poe writes differs wildly from Cuvier in one important respect, and it is that that Poe's fictional Cuvier describes the orangutan as possessing a wild ferocity. But Cuvier actually describes orangutans as gentle and easily tameable, which I think is probably the experience we've all had when we've gone to a zoo, that these creatures are unlikely to have actually to actually commit the type of crime that, that Poe envisions here. Yeah, this it's it's really it's really written to be like a beast man sort of thing, more than just like a, a slightly large uh, monkey. <laughs> yeah, that's you know? right. And so I think that your uh, explication here of the etymology of this word as the the wild man of the woods or jungle man, I think, is how you translated it, is really more in play here than actually anything Poe has really read about the description of the animal. He's he's really taken the meaning of the word more than the description of these I think these so. creatures. Yeah, that's what I think is going on here. But we learn that Dupin has a plan to lure the orangutan's owner to the mansion. He has deduced that the owner is a sailor. Um, there's a little bit of physical evidence here that allows him to deduce this. Um, and he has placed an ad in a newspaper read primarily by sailors, claiming that they have found an orangutan, Dupin and the narrator, and would like to return it to its rightful owner. And once again, Dupin demonstrates his ability to see the world from this other person's point of view, uh, his adversary, perhaps in this case. And as he is explaining to the narrator why the sailor must come to the house, there is a step upon the stairs. They have left the front door of the house open. There's a real detail in this letter that belies a knowledge on par with Dupin's knowledge of the various types of shutters used around France, which is that he has recognized not only that this is an orangutan, but he has recognized that it is a Bornese orangutan or a Bornean orangutan, as we would call it, not a Sumatran orangutan, uh, which is what we have at the Philadelphia Zoo. And so here he is just demonstrating the the vast knowledge that he has of every imaginable topic, whether or not it will ever come into any practical use for him. But I also want to pair this use of Bornean, this this identification, not just of the genus of great ape that's responsible for this crime, but the species of, of that genus that's responsible for the crime with this detail about 
Malta. The sailor is a Frenchman, but he's on a Maltese vessel. And Malta is an island in the Mediterranean. It's a little bit south of Sicily. And the use of Malta here is an invocation of the exotic that is on par with the orangutan itself. Even though it's much closer to home, it's 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 part of Europe in some sense, uh, because the indigenous language on Malta is a Semitic language. It's not Indo-European, which is to say that the language that is spoken on the ship that this sailor travels on is as alien from the languages of the witnesses as is the orangutan's own noises, which I think is very interesting here. And and something else that's, I think, just kind of fun to note about Malta here is that the island was ruled by a medieval military order from roughly 1500 until 1798 when Napoleon conquered the island for France. And this is just fun to point out because this is also the backdrop of the most famous of the hard-boiled variety of detective stories, the Maltese Falcon. It's interesting that you bring up the hard-boiled genre of the detective story, because one thing that I find favorable to the kind of Dupin archetype, uh, Holmesian archetype of detectives in, in, that I find more favorable in hard-boiled fiction is that the limits are a lot more real. It's not the limits of the mind, it's the limits of the body in hard-boiled fiction, and that's something I typically appreciate more. It's a little more grounded. So as we can imagine, the sailor has arrived to the mansion and Dupin confronts the sailor about his role in the murders at the Rue Morgue, also letting him know that he knows about the orangutan. And there's a nice little bit of prose here about the sailor absolutely losing it, losing composure, falling back. And Dupin says, no, 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 no. It's okay. I just need to know. I'm not really interested in (laughs) what you're going through right now. (laughs) I just need you to tell me what happened. And so the sailor tells his tale to Dupin and the narrator. He and a friend had captured an orangutan in Borneo and smuggled it back to France on their ship. On this journey, the friend died. And so this sailor now was stuck with this orangutan. He moved the orangutan into his apartment and locked it in the closet as he was convalescing over an injured foot. One night while he's out carousing with his friends, the orangutan breaks out of the closet and goes to the bathroom to shave. The sailor comes home and sees the razor in the hand of the orangutan and is terrified because of the danger of that weapon represents being held in the hand of this wild beast. The sailor goes for the whip to try to quiet the creature, and instead it runs off, razor in hand. There's a chase through the streets of Paris, and finally this orangutan is attracted to the light that is on in the room of Madame L'Espinier, And it climbs up the lightning rod and crosses the shutters and jumps in through the window near the bed. Madame L'Espinier is in the other room going through some papers in her safe. And when she discovers this creature, she screams. And the ape gets her and tries to perform his little shaving operation on Madame L'Espinier. And she struggles and it makes the ape angry. So it severs her head with the, the from her body with the razor. And now the daughter, who had swooned upon witnessing some of these events, was attacked by the orangutan. And then we're told the orangutan feels some remorse and it thinks about the whip and it tries to conceal the bodies. It stuffs the daughter up the chimney and it throws the old lady out the window. 
So this ends the mystery portion of the story, The Murders in the Room Morgue, and it's followed by a just a brief epilogue. Yeah, just one thing I want to make sure we focus on in the events of of the murder, which are all really horrific. I mean, this is this violence is disturbing. This level of violence is grotesque. But it all begins with the orangutan with this non-human ape attempting to imitate its human captor. That's a very good point. And and trying to take that imitation with it out into the world, perhaps in some virtuous way. So in the epilogue of this story, we learn that Laban was released from prison and that the prefect of police is amused by the turn of events. And he's pretty sarcastic about it to Dupin. Dupin tells the narrator that that's fine because he's just satisfied that he defeated the prefect of police in his own castle. Although the prefect is perhaps a fool, Dupin admires him for one bit of can't, as he puts it. He admires the prefect of police for his ability to deny that which is and explain that which is not. And it's here that the narrator ends his tale. Yeah, we also learn in this epilogue, Brandon, that no charges of any kind are brought against the sailor. That's right. And the, the sailor is even able to sell the orangutan to the zoo for a lot of money. <laughs> it's just uh, an outrage. It is. So I got curious about this, and I, I, I thought... Can I can I have a pet orangutan? It turns out that I would go to all sorts of jails if I had a pet orangutan. This is a federal crime. It is a state of Pennsylvania crime. And it is also a city of Philadelphia crime. I would be charged by all three of these entities if I had an orangutan. Even if I just had an orangutan, let alone if it actually murdered someone across the street. Well, I uh, think the Pennsylvania and Philadelphia crime can be explained by the fact that Poe lived here. And most of the police probably read this story pretty early on and immediately got to writing a law about people housing orangutans in their Philadelphia row homes. I would like to see the uh, the minutes of these uh, uh, state senate <laughs> meeting on this. <laughs> well, Brandon, now that we know who has committed our grisly crime in the Rue Morgue, I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. Join us next time for an in-depth discussion of this fantastic tale by Edgar Allan Poe. Until then, we greet you and say farewell.